0: This This is
1: The Second Second
0: Story Podcast.
1: Welcome back to The Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. There are many necessary professions in this world that only some people are capable of. My family is full of medical professionals, but the thought of entering a hospital at all makes me queasy, which makes me all the more grateful for the folks willing and able to enter such an important line of work. This week's teller, Tony Lupo, has one such profession. He works at a funeral home. Please join him as he gives us a view into how a job so intrinsically tied to loss can be so full of love. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in 2019, Second Story is proud to present Charlie.
0: face down at my desk, my head resting on the back of my hand when my colleague Steve walks over to me. Tired, he asks, laying a piece of paper in front of me. Here's the first call report for your 10 o'clock appointment. It's a kid. These are the worst. I don't look up at him. How old, I say. Three, I think. The phone rings and Steve walks away to answer it. I drag my head up to look at the report. I glance at the parents' names and don't recognize them. At this point, I was averaging about three hours of sleep a night. My daughter, Charlie, at almost nine months old, was waking up every hour and a half screaming. Our apartment had turned into a torture chamber. She was difficult to soothe, and so was I. The night before had been pretty rough. I had spent almost two hours going through this cycle of rubbing her back, laying her in a rocker because she wouldn't sleep in her crib, listening to her scream when I put her down, picking up the rocker and swaying back and forth with it until my back was ready to give out, finally getting her to fall asleep, only to have her start screaming again the second my head hit my pillow. God damn it, I yelled. What is wrong with her? Hey, calm down, Betty snapped back. Calm down? This is horrible. Nothing's working. There's got to be something, I don't know. Is there something you're doing, I mean, we're doing wrong? (laughs) I had crossed over into that dangerous territory of blame. You think this is my fault? You're kidding me. And on and on it went, the fraying edges of my sanity causing me to turn and point at Betty, my selfishness turning joy into regret. We had started this adventure together as a unified front, and now the sheen was fading. I really wasn't enjoying fatherhood like I thought I was supposed to. Charlie was born just as I turned 30. I was completely unprepared for how truly unprepared I was. In my mind, the birth plan had always been simple. Betty's water breaks, she gets the drugs, pops out the baby, and we head home to raise a genius. But no, it was not like that. This new life had become so uncomfortable. The crying, the sleepless nights, the monotony, the mess. At the same time, I was desperately trying to hang on to my youth, dragging Betty around Chicago, burning the candles at both ends. I wanted to squeeze every bit out of life that I could. Working in a funeral home with its fast pace and its unpredictable schedule, its endless sadness, was enough to handle. But this parenting thing was really pushing me over the edge. Tears at 9 a.m., tears at 2 p.m., tears in the middle of the night. So the day Leslie and Michael came into my office at the funeral home looking like zombies, I recognized that look, and I assumed I understood it. She was clearly exhausted, and he had this tired anger on his face. I ushered them in, and we sat on opposite sides of the desk. I began mechanically filling out the death certificate. What's his birthday, I ask with my head down. July 18th, Leslie answers. What year, I continue. And then, I'm sorry, I just have to fill this stuff out. 2008. He's three and a half, Leslie smiles. Charlie loved including the half. I bobbled the pen in my hand. Up until that point, I hadn't thought about the boy's name. It had read Charles everywhere. And when she said Charlie out loud, I looked up at them, almost confused. I saw how raw their faces were, and I started to sweat. Wow, my, my daughter's name is Charlie, too. She's almost a year old, I offer clumsily. Leslie smiles politely. Michael stares at me. I look back down at my paperwork. What's his last address? I look up again and catch Michael's glare. He lived at home with us. He's three and a half. This is Charlie's favorite toy, Leslie cuts in. She pulls a small blue and green train from a bag she's holding in her lap. She twists it around in her hands, still looking at it as she speaks. He loved to play with trains. We took him on his first train ride just a few months ago. His eyes just bugged out when he he saw it pull up to the station. He could hardly sit still. We really didn't even go anywhere. We just rode it back and forth. Do you think we could put it in with him? Of course, I say, anything you want. Here, why don't you look through this catalog and choose some memorial cards? I push the binder toward them. What for? What do we need these for? With each question, Michael singes me a bit more with his anger. Well, you don't need them, but it might be a nice keepsake for your family. I had faced this before. The anger bubbling up from beneath the surface. That's part of the job. Bob and weave through a firing squad of emotions. Strangers letting you in on their most painful moments. Your mother dies of cancer. Your husband has a heart attack. Your three-and-a-half-year-old son gets a fever. People you know and love shoved into holes in the ground, shoved into walls, shoved into ovens. But this was different. Leslie just kept saying the name over and over again. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie. And every time she did, I thought of my daughter, and my eyes welled up. I thought back to that day at the hospital, the day she was born, and how useless I felt, and how excited I was when I was finally given a job by the doctor. Dad, come over here. You're going to stand right here and hold your wife's leg, the doctor had said. It was like, okay, here we go. I'm in this now. And I thought of how quickly things had changed as the heart rate monitor slowed, and how the room turned into a frenzy as they realized the umbilical cord had been wrapped around Charlie's neck. I remember the beeping, slow and menacing. I remember the look of worry above the masks and behind the protective glasses. I remember feeling like I was going to jump out of my skin as Dr. Levin went at Betty with what looked like salad tongs to pull out Charlie. I remember that useless feeling just washing over me as I watched. And then again, how quickly things changed. Our daughter was in our arms, breathing and crying. Our Charlie was fine. And I remember that's how it is, the rapid change in emotions, life's ability to stop on a dime and change direction. Leslie slid a photograph across the desk to me. Here's a picture of Charlie with us. She keeps two fingers on the photo and flips it around again so it faces her. I mean, look how he wrapped his arms around our necks. Charlie was always doing stuff like that. He was just the sweetest. She picks up the tiny, grubby blue blanket that was resting in her lap, and she clutches it. This is Charlie's baby blanket. He loved it so much. Can we tuck him in with it? I nod and look over at Michael. My face is hot, and he looks like he is going to scream. I hated having to sit there and ask him these seemingly pointless questions. I hated having to explain the size of the casket that we would need to get for his son. I hated trying to do my job and not being able to stop the tears from coming. I hated sitting at that desk and feeling so powerless, so useless again. A few days later, I'm on my heels, leaning up against the back wall of St. Paul's Church, staring up at the vaulted ceilings and the stained glass windows. Usually, when I'm working a funeral, me and a coworker are somewhere in the back lobby or a side room talking about last night's Cubs game or what new TV show we should check out. But not today. Today I feel pulled into the church. I want to see what it looks like, this kind of quick mangling of your life. I want to be reminded what could happen to something you take for granted. There's probably 500 people inside. It's standing room only. They're all going through the motions, repeating the rituals, extending their hands in a sign of peace, grasping for answers, receiving the body of Christ and hoping it will bring them consolation. The prayers and the pain hang like a fog. The mass ends, and Michael stands up in the front row and moves toward the pulpit. Most of what he says zooms by me, a story about his son's charm and humor, how much joy and light he brought to their lives in such a short time, how broken they were. And then he pulls out this tape recorder. I was going through stuff in Charlie's room the other day. I really don't even know what I was looking for, and I found this tape recorder. He was obsessed with it. I found a recording from some random day we were playing hide-and-seek. I can see how different Michael is from the man who sat across from me in my office a few days ago. I can see how much he has been given and how much has been taken away. He takes a deep breath and goes on. And now when I listen to it, I think, wow, I actually have Charlie's voice here. And I can just imagine it's him talking to me every time I listen to it. He pushes play, and after a few seconds of rumbling static, a little boy's high-pitched voice calls out, Dad? Dad, are you down there? I'm up here, Dad. I'm waiting for you. The moans and sobs throughout the crowd are audible, a chorus of sorrow. I feel the knot tighten in my stomach, the tears rolling down my face. I see the smiling face of my Charlie and the playful way she rolls around the floor in nothing but a diaper. I feel the weight of love against my chest, the tangle of tiny fingers and toes the transfer of the treasure of life from parent to child and back again. Almost six months later, I'm pushing Charlie in her stroller on the way to the park, her feet kicking the plastic foot guard. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon, the sky a blinding white-blue that always seems to make me sneeze. At this time, Charlie's outdoor life revolves pretty much around park swings. Those were the days when I could still push her from the front before the fierce demands of, another underdog. I could still watch her smile and laugh and watch the wind push back the little wisp of hair she has. Those were the days when I could still repeat her name over and over again in a series of obvious questions and unnecessary statements. Who's a good Charlie girl? Hey, little Charlie. Who likes to swing? Charlie likes to swing. As I straighten up and look around, I see him. Michael stands tall and lean, staring in our direction, listening to me say Charlie's name over and over. His younger son, Danny, pulls at his jacket. Daddy, daddy, slide, daddy. As he meets my eyes, his blank stare brightens into a smile. It's not a big one or even a happy one, but it's definitely a smile. He puts up a hand and a wave, his fingers spread, almost reaching toward me. I wave back, holding my hand out for a moment. He turns and bends down to Danny's level, and I turn back to Charlie, kicking away in her swing.
1: This story was produced by Kit Ryan, curated by Amanda Delheimer and Vince Pagan, and directed by Matt Ferries. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden, Arps, Slate Meager and Flome, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This This is the second Second
0: Story Podcast.